This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. I sometimes feel like we look at these ancient, dusty old processes and, and just sort of shrug our shoulders and say, well, nothing can change. And like, practically speaking, I guess that's the case. But, you know, as, as, a, as a nation, these are things we should be thinking about. And I would argue um, clarifying and trying to make them sort of more compatible with um, how our system is kind of supposed to work, which is that, you know, that we have a, this mass electorate now that votes for the president and, and decides the presidency. But that system is kind of grafted onto this old electoral college system that also has this um, sort of strange tie-breaking system at, at the heart of it. Welcome to Politics is Everything. I'm Kara ong And I'm Kyle Kondik. First of all, I should say this is a very special episode because Kyle and I are together in the same recording studio, aka my office at the Center for Politics. So this is a very special occasion. Kyle, so excited to be with you in person. Thank you. We're usually doing it from the spacious Center for Politics, Washington Bureau, at least I am, um, which happens to be the office at my house in Washington. <laughs> so uh, good to be here. And we are here because we uh, uh, this will have happened, I guess, by the time you hear this. But uh, tonight, Thursday night, we're hosting uh, Bernie Sanders. So uh, it's a pretty cool event for us at the Center for Politics today. It's been a long year this month of March. <laughs> it's, we're day two of March, for those of you who don't get that joke. Um, But yesterday, we also announced that former Representative Liz Cheney will be joining the Center for Politics as a professor of practice here at the University of Virginia. So we are incredibly excited to also have that news coming this week. And she'll be joining us in the classroom with students doing lectures and research. Um, I don't know about you, Kyle, but I'm just incredibly honored and excited to learn from her and work with her. I've been with the Center for Politics for a long time. We've had a number of great, you know, speakers and people who've been affiliated with the, with the Center for Politics in the past. And, you know, we do try to offer fairly diverse viewpoints. And while, you know, Liz Cheney and Bernie Sanders might have probably have some similar opinions about Donald Trump, they've got a lot of different opinions about a lot of other things. So uh, it just so happened coincidentally that uh, the Sanders event tonight and that the Cheney announcement yesterday are sort of happening at the same time. It wasn't planned. It just worked out that way. Um, but uh, we think it's we think it's pretty cool for for the center, for our students, and, and for the broader uh, community uh, around the, around UVA. So in our announcement about Representative Liz Cheney joining us, um, you know, one of the things she noted was that she was looking forward to uh, preserving our constitutional republic. Uh, I thought we should start off with a couple of reminders about provisions in the Constitution, which listeners are going to want to be considering as Kyle discusses his new analysis that's out in the crystal ball this week, which is why we're recording. Um, but uh, just, just some quick reminders. The Electoral College, which we're going to be talking about, was originally established in Article 2 of the Constitution, and it provides that each state may select a number of electors equal to the number of U.S. House of Representatives and Senators. Um, also in the Constitution, the 23rd Amendment, which was ratified in 1961, assigns three additional electors to the District of Columbia, and that brought the total number of electors to 538. Again, important number to remember. I'm sure our listeners do know that already, but just a reminder. So to win, typically a presidential ticket has to obtain 270. 
of uh, if all of the electors vote. Um, otherwise, the 12th Amendment provides that the House of Representatives chooses the president with each state delegation receiving one vote and the Senate chooses the vice president by a majority vote. So we're going to get into some of that today. But the reason why we are talking about the Constitution and talking about that is that Kyle and Miles um, started off with a piece yet uh, that went out on March 1st. Um, that talks about the potentialities for an electoral college tie. So Kyle, uh, start us off. What are the probabilities, possibilities that we would actually have an electoral tie, especially given the reapportionment that happened after 2020? So we actually came fairly close in the 2020 election because the three closest states won by Joe Biden were Arizona, uh, Georgia, and Wisconsin. All those states were decided by less than a percentage point of margin apiece. If Donald Trump had won those states, the Electoral College vote would have been 269 to 269. Um, the House would have then uh, uh, decided um, the uh, the election, which we'll get into. Uh, that particular um alignment of states is not possible anymore because the Electoral College uh, uh, apportionment has changed. Basically, because of the changes in population that were found by the 2020 census, Electoral College votes got reallocated. And so like Texas gained two, Florida gained one, a few other states gained, gained, a seat, gained uh, seats and, and uh, um, their commensurate uh, electoral votes. Uh, but the way this worked now is if you took Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin away from Biden's 2020 map, um, he would actually lose straight up 272 to 266. Uh, Donald Trump or the Republican nominee would have won un under that allocation. Uh, and so if you're trying to think about realistic uh, 269 to 269 scenarios, you can't use that one that we came so close to in 2020. You know, that said, we sort of brainstormed some possibilities and we just restricted ourselves to making changes among the states that were decided by three by less than three points in, in 2020. And there were seven states, uh, uh, the three I mentioned, um, plus Nevada, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania and North Carolina. North Carolina is the only one of those that voted for Trump in 2020. And you do still come up with some uh, some possibilities if you just mess around with those specific three states. Um, in one of the scenarios, if you hold everything else the same from 2020 outside of those seven states. Uh, if you give the Republican Nevada, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, you give the Democrat uh, North Carolina, uh, Arizona, and Georgia, that's a tie scenario. Um, there were a couple other ones that we came up with. Um, and uh, some readers also suggested that if you sort of turn back the clock a little bit and the political alignment looked a little bit more like the pre-2016 time, um, you could mess around with Nebraska's second congressional district. Um, Nebraska and Maine award electoral votes by congressional district. They're the only two states who do that. And if you gave um, the Republicans uh, uh, sort of the Sunbelt states, North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, um, and uh, uh, Nevada, um, and also that Nebraska second vote, and then you gave uh, the Democrats the, the blue wall um, states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, um, that also would end up being a, a tie situation. Um, and, you know, again, we we didn't look at that one specifically in, in Crystal Ball article. But the point is, is that you don't need to go through like immense contortions like you could p pick out these specific scenarios and say, oh, well, I don't think that's likely or I don't think that's likely. And like, I agree, like like you wouldn't bet on a 269, 269 outcome, but the pieces are there that it could happen. So it's not a crazy thing to suggest happening in, in 2024. The House actually has not had to decide a presidential election since all the way back in 1824. So this is the 200th anniversary of that last happening. So what would happen if there is a tie? 
So the House would decide all 50 states would get a single vote. So California with 52 House members gets the same uh, single vote as Vermont or Wyoming with one member. Um, D.C., as you mentioned, Kara, is part of the Electoral College, but it's not part of this process. So um, D.C. is not represented. It does not have a vote. Um, it actually would be great if it was because at least there would then be like an actual tiebreaker. Although you have to get a majority of all the states to win in a House in a House uh, presidential selection process. So that's 26 of the 50. Um, and right now, Republicans control 26 of the delegations. So that bare majority required. Democrats control 22. And then there are two that are tied, Minnesota and North Carolina. And in the piece, I went through you know, what's sort of likely to happen in these states in the House uh, over the next two years, uh, because the, the new House elected in 2024 would actually make the, um, you know, would make the selection for the president if the Electoral College deadlocks. And I found that there are a lot of plausible paths for the Republicans to get to 26, and that they're pretty likely to have 26. There really aren't any for Democrats. There maybe are some ways that Democrats could prevent the Republicans from having an actual majority without having a majority of their own. What would happen then? You know, it's hard to know that the Senate would pick the vice president. That's just every senator gets a single vote. If the Senate could produce a vice president while the House doesn't produce a president, that vice president sort of serves as an acting president until the um, until the House decides. You know, this is all kind of in theoretical world because the process hasn't been used since in, in 200 years. And even when it was used, it did actually produce an outcome. Um, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't this time. But I, you know, we lay all this out just to say that there are these very arcane old you know, processes involved in, in deciding the Electoral College if the voters don't render a clear verdict. Um, and we check in on this every couple of years just to um, just explain it and make people aware of how it could happen because I think it would be just like, a real shock to most people is how this actually worked if it if it yeah. actually came into practice. Yes, I mean in 2020 all of a sudden people were remembering and well really after January 6th made it even more salient the electoral reform count act, right? Um came about because there were some questions in in the Trump campaign's efforts to um overturn the results of the 2020 election to use the vice president for example not just as a ceremonial figure um but to actually discard states uh, electoral votes or slates of electors. Um so I mean you're you're raising awareness but you know which is really important but I'm wondering also, you know, what should we be thinking about doing in preparation for these scenarios because a constitutional amendment at this point, there's the legislative process, of course, to clarify some of these things. But what should we be thinking about now in preparation for such a scenario, given that we do have these closely contested elections and that such a scenario is plausible? I'd say that the general public is probably not aware of these tie-breaking situations, but I'll tell you one person who was aware of them, that was John Eastman, when he wrote this his famous memo that was you know, basically hogwash, legally speaking. But one of the things he mentioned, I didn't mention this in the article today, but I, I thought about it and I was, was sort of researching it a little bit. But he makes reference to the fact that that Republicans controlled the tie-breaking scenario if the, if the House had to decide the election. And he mentions that in the memo. And he says, well, Pence should just say that there are, you know, disputed sets of, of, of electors, which there really weren't, but of, of course, but um, that, so basically that Pence should just have the power to throw out 
the the uh, the electors from you know states where the Trump people were complaining about the vote, and then he could say, well, there's not a majority, so the House has to decide, and then the House would have selected Trump, which so so that you know that process is described in that memo, so it is you know was it was something that was in the back of the minds of or maybe front of the minds for some of the people who you know, basically wanted to steal the 2020 election um, and, you know, the events of January 6th and, and, and all that. And so, um, you know, what should the process be? I mean, again, that's sort of in the eye of the beholder and the process isn't changing anytime soon. You know, I mean, there are other, you know, advanced democracies um, that have presidential systems that have runoffs. And, you know, maybe if we were starting this system from scratch or if we wanted to amend the process in some way, we could keep the Electoral College, but say that if nobody gets to 270, there is a runoff and maybe you just rerun the election. Um, you know, maybe you just have the top two finishers at that point. I mean, again, I'm just sort of speaking here theoretically. Um, and of course, there are other people who say, hey, if we're going to amend the Constitution, let's just get rid of this tie-breaking process in the House. Let's get rid of the Electoral College itself. They're actually, you know, the, the last time a uh, you know non-major party candidate actually won electoral votes in their own right was George Wallace in 1968. He wanted the election to go to the House. And, you know, it could have happened. There were changes. If the results were a little bit different in a few states, it would have happened. Um, and he essentially wanted to dictate terms to the to the, to the person who would win um, through the you know control of the kind of conservative Southern Democratic House delegations. Uh, and at the time, they're actually, you know, public opinion is um, particularly back then was very negative on the Electoral College and President Nixon and, and uh, a bipartisan uh, supermajority in the House passed a, uh, a, an effort of constitutional amendment to do away with the Electoral College. It, it failed in the Senate or it never I don't even know if it ever got to a vote in the Senate. Um, but, you know, there, there, I sometimes feel like we look at these ancient, dusty old processes and, and just sort of shrug our shoulders and say, well, nothing can change. And like, practically speaking, I guess that's the case. But, you know, as, as, a, as a nation, these are things we should be thinking about. And I would argue um, clarifying and trying to make them sort of more compatible with um, how our system is kind of supposed to work, which is that, you know, that we have a, this mass electorate now that votes for the president and, and, and decides the presidency. But that system is kind of grafted onto this old electoral college system that also has this um, sort of strange tie-breaking system at, at the heart of it. So, um, you know, again, what you actually do about it, practically speaking, probably nothing, but it's at least worth sort of understanding and thinking about. On that point about what to do about it, there was some momentum for a little while about um, the interstate compact for the national popular vote. That seems to have dwindled a little bit, especially since 2019, at least in terms of I've you know, kind of watched this movement percolate from um, some of the democracy reform circles. And the idea with the interstate compact is that states agree to allocate their votes based on the popular vote within those states. And I think they're, as of now still, and I think this has been the case since 2019 or 2018, you know, they're 88 um, uh electoral vote shy of getting, you know, to a majority of that still, um, you know, so, so there's, there are some of these, there are some reforms out there in which, you know, we, we might try to work within the electoral college system as it is, but, you know, you mentioned that public opinion about the electoral college wasn't high, um, back in the, in, in 1968. I don't think it's, it's doing much better right now, again, because we're in this period of closely contested elections and there is a sense, um, you know, especially for, for states who, 
you know, very populous states that don't that might swing in this age of of partisan polar polarization, you know, don't get attention from the candidates, um, you know, that there isn't it isn't really one person, one vote um, with the system that we have. And in terms of this period of partisan polarization that we're in, are there other have you seen any other reform movements that are sort of, you know, amend, not end or work within the existing structure through um a state, a state by state approach. You know, you mentioned the the sort of national interstate compact to, that would sort of do this end run around the electoral college. That's the one I guess that's been the most public. I guess I'm not really aware of others, although I'm sure that they're they're out there. Um, and again, that it, it, you know, it, as recently as late '60s, there was like an actual effort to just do away with the electoral college. And uh, you know, th- I mean, we did only have I think it was only f- uh, eight states decided by five points or less in the in the. 2020 election. And that's been a growing trend that the individual elections have been very close to competitive. We're in a, we're in arguably the most competitive era in presidential election history. Really the only other comparable time would be the late 1800s, which was a time where you also had so-called electoral college misfires where the popular vote winner did not necessarily match the, the electoral vote or the electoral college winner. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, you've got, you've got a lot of, you've got competitive national elections with a lot of uncompetitive states. Um, that wasn't the case if you go back to like the, the Kennedy-Nixon election of 1960 or Ford-Carter in 76. They were both nationally competitive, but they're also very competitive within the states too. And a lot of the, the big states were competitive back then too. So, um, you know, a lot of people I think feel left out. And like, you know, it's also, you know, I think that, that, I think some Republicans sort of bristled the fact that well they haven't won they've only won the popular vote once since um, since since uh, George H W Bush in 1988, and they say well you know th- that's how the 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 system was you know contested and and di- people would run different campaigns if if it wasn't for electoral college which I say absolutely that would be the case and we can't go back and say necessarily how these elections would have shaken out had um, every you know every voter really had. Um, say in sort of a national outcome. You know, the other tricky thing is that we don't we don't conduct federal elections in this country either. There are federal races that are conducted at the state level, including the presidential election. You know, like I, I mentioned earlier that there's a, you know, like like France and Brazil have like a runoff system for president, but they also, I don't think they conduct the elections that we, like like the way we do. Um, you know, so if you ever had a, re, had a recount, you know, national recount or something, each state would have to do it differently. So it's a, it's a strange cobbled together system that we have that, frankly, I don't think anyone would design if we were starting from scratch today, but because it's written in the Constitution and because there is certainly disagreement between the two parties as to whether the system should exist or not, um, it makes it hard to actually to actually change it. And it's really hard to change the Constitution. Yeah, we're right. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. You already mentioned George Wallace. And so I want to ask you to maybe talk out a little bit more about what happens if there is a third party candidate, which I think is actually, you know, a, a plausible scenario. Um, and I can see, for example, I mean, you write about Donald Trump running. Um, you know, I can see if he, he I think it's quite plausible if he doesn't win uh, the primary for the Republican Party that, you know, he does work with the Freedom Caucus um, and and does run a third party ticket, if only to sort of kind of push the Republican Party in their direction, kind of as we saw with the vote for Kevin McCarthy. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about a little bit more about what that scenario looks like. Yeah, so actually back in 1824, it was not a tie. It was that no one got to a majority of the electoral votes because you had 
um, four prominent candidates um, running. And then what happens is that if there is a if if the electoral college is inconclusive, it doesn't produce a majority winner. Um, the House will then decide amongst the top three finishing candidates. So. In the case of 2024, it would be the Democratic nominee, the Republican nominee, and some other third-party candidate. That could be Donald Trump, potentially. It could be somebody else who actually is able to win enough electoral votes that they prevent anyone else from getting to um, a majority. And that third candidate would be, um, you know, would be a, a consideration to actually become president because once the election goes to the House, what actually happened earlier doesn't really matter now. Functionally speaking, you'd think, well, the Republicans would have an advantage in the in the tie-breaking process. Therefore, they would just pick the Republican nominee. But particularly if the other candidate was Trump, like you can imagine there being a lot of uh, different machinations with that. Um, interestingly, too, in the vice presidential selection by the Senate, they only decide among the top two finishers. Uh, so that would rule out whoever, I guess, in this hypothetical situation, so long as it was Trump finishing third, whoever his running mate is wouldn't make it. You know, there are sore loser laws in states that, you know, prevent someone from like losing a nomination and then running later. But legally, there are a lot of folks who believe that that would not apply to the president's presidential um, candidate. And that essentially Donald Trump, again, I'm just using him as a stand in as sort of the likeliest person maybe to run a third party. I wouldn't necessarily say it's likely he does it, but um, it just sort of makes the most sense at this point to consider, you know, he could probably sue to get on ballots. Um, there is a, um, you know, there, there's a there's a process in all the, all 50 states to get on the ballot as a third party candidate. I remember we looked at this um, in 2020 when Kanye West was trying to get on the ballot yeah. late in that election. You, you also could imagine a world in which you know, you do have like the libertarians that already sort of have ballot access in a lot of places. You know, would they nominate, would they nominate Trump or would they nominate like somebody else? And would that person be like a prominent alternative to the Republican nominee? Um, you know, it was like a Green Party nominee who actually gets some votes. You know, I can't imagine a libertarian or Green Party candidate actually winning a state. Although, again, if it's Trump, it's a different story because maybe he would win some of the states where he's proven to be very popular. West Virginia is one that like really comes to mind. Um, in a world where that's happening, I guess you'd think, oh, well, the Democrat would just win the presidency because it would be like 1912 when the Republicans split um, and Woodrow Wilson won the presidency. But like, who knows? Like maybe... Um, Maybe Trump would win only a couple of states, and that would be wouldn't be enough necessarily to uh, allow the Democrat to end up winning. So um, it's a you know it's a it, I, it's it's a confusing situation. The reason why we sort of write about it, talk about it, is just like you know I think we should be prepared um, because again we don't talk about it that much, but it did come pretty close to happening in 2020. The lessons for me too are that it's also a good reminder that government is always reactionary and reforms are always reactionary to what happens. And it would be really nice if we could be more proactive and have a structure that is more proactive and responsive to likely scenarios that may arise. A couple of other uh, major announcements this week that we can talk, we can chat really quickly about. Um, first up is in Michigan this week, Democratic Representative Alyssa Slotkin announced her candidacy for the open seat in that state. Um, and last week, Senator John Tester also declared Declared he's running for re-election in Montana. Uh, what are your takes on these races? Slot can always seem like the most logical Democratic nominee in Michigan. There are some other candidates still considering, um, but I think she'd be a pretty strong contender um, to, to hold that Senate seat um, for a Democrat. She holds a uh, basically a swing seat that's actually a little bit to the right of Michigan as a, as, a, as a whole. So from her perspective, 
if you look at Michigan as like a district, <laughs> it's it's actually a little bit more favorable to a Democrat than uh, than than her actual district is, which is a uh, um, basically almost evenly divided for president. It's centered around uh, Lansing, the state the state capital, and then yeah, John Tester running in Montana. Um, you know, the, the Democrats have always been stronger at the sort of sub uh, presidential level in Montana than you know than they are at, for president. Um, Tester has won three you know pretty close elections: 06, 12, 18. Um, I think he's still a pretty formidable candidate, but he's certainly going to need ticket splitting to win, um, just like Sherrod Brown in Ohio and, and Joe Manchin in West Virginia if, if Manchin runs again. But um, you know, if Tester had had retired, you know, this would be a a seat, a state where the Republicans would be favored to win again. And um, as he's, you know, Tester's running again. And so Tester's either maybe a slight favorite or that's sort of a toss up kind of race. So um, those are two, you know, pretty important pieces of the overall Senate story this year. So we typically don't talk about local elections, but I also thought we should uh, quickly discuss what happened in Chicago's mayoral race this week. Mayor Lori Lightfoot lost her reelection. I believe she's the first uh, Chicago mayor to lose reelection in quite some time. Going to the runoff uh, in April will be Paul Vias, who's the former head of the city school system. Uh, he ran on a tough on crime message uh, in the city. Crime has been on the rise, especially since the pandemic. For example, the number of major crimes uh, was 33% higher last year than it was before the pandemic in 2019. Um, The other person uh, that will go to the runoff is Brandon Johnson, who is a progressive county commissioner, previously worked as a teacher and a union organizer. Uh, Vias finished with 34% of the vote and Johnson finished second with 20%. Do you have any thoughts on what might happen there and why it matters? I don't have a you know great sense of uh, of of you know w- what might happen in that uh, in, in that race. It does seem like there's some interesting ideological things going on, and of course you know we think about Chicago, we think about sort of like machine politics and the dailies and and uh, you know and, and 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 whatnot. And you know in some ways a lot of places aren't really run like that anymore. But um, and you know Lightfoot was definitely someone who was sort of outside of that world, but. Frankly, it didn't seem like she made that many friends in office, and I think it showed in her results that you know she she very clearly finished in third place in a multi-candidate field, a fairly a pretty weak performance for a um, for for an incumbent. And uh, um, you know, this is one of the you know the, the odd-numbered years. There's usually you know there are a handful of governors' races and um, a, a few things, but you know a lot of a lot of uh, uh, big city mayorships are decided in these uh, uh, in in these odd-numbered years. And uh, I think Democrats are probably. There's probably going to be a lot of focus on this runoff because, again, it does seem like there's an ideological um, split. And my guess is people will probably take broader conclusions from it than maybe they should um, because these things are sometimes based on actual local factors as opposed to interpreting everything through like a national lens. Well, Kyle, thank you as always for your terrific analysis in the crystal ball. Uh, It was a great civics reminder this week. Yeah, it's a, it's a reminder of how screwy our system is, um, and particularly once you go down in the weeds and really look at it. And again, I hope that, you know, I don't want us to have a situation where we don't have a clear electoral college winner because I think it would be, um, people would be like, I mean, certainly the people who lost would be very upset about the outcome. And um, I just think it would be a very sloppy and confusing process to a lot of people. And, and frankly, I think it, we should change it. In what way, I don't know. Uh, I typically am not in the advocacy business, but this just seems like a very strange way to, to, to do things based on the way we otherwise think about presidential elections today. Listeners, as you heard, we're not in the advocacy business here, but we would like to hear your ideas for change and reform. You can email us at goodpoliticsvirginia.edu. 
Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Wigley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. You can learn more about the Center for Politics on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. Until next time.